The following episode contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. Opinions expressed by the subjects interviewed for this podcast are not representative of the producers of the series. It's the morning of May 28, 1979, San Antonio, Texas. Federal Judge John Wood leaves his condo to head to court. His nickname was Maximum John. He gets off on giving everybody the maximum sentence, even if it's for some silly shit. I mean, I've gone in front of some judges that are tough and somewhat on the mean side, but he was just in another planet. Judge Wood reaches the parking lot at 8.30 a.m., only to see that his wife's car has a flat. If the marshals had been with him, they certainly wouldn't have been able to get to him the way they did. He leans down to check the tire. When 100 yards away, a shot rings out. U.S. District Judge John Wood lay on the driveway beside his car. He had just been shot dead, a single bullet in the back. This became the largest FBI investigation, the largest manhunt in its history. No one had ever dispensed of a federal judge. At the time of his death, Wood was scheduled to preside at the criminal enterprise trial of Jimmy Chagra. Jimmy was responsible for supplying the United States with about 85% of the marijuana that was smoked between the 70s and 80s. Two years and $12 million later, the FBI thought they'd found their killer, hitman Charles V. Harrelson. This is his story. Harrelson would kill anybody for $500. But now I'm telling you, Charlie got along with everybody. Everybody seemed to like Charlie. Charles was a serial killer. And he was, he was a card shark. He was a scary guy. I mean, he was a scary guy, for real. Son of a Hitman, Chapter 1. All He Has Done. Hey, Brad, nice to see hey, you. Hey, man. Hey, guys. Nice to see you all. Ready to get into this? Yeah. All right, cool. <clears throat> what do you know about what we're doing so far? Well, I understand um, we're going to investigate probability of my father being involved in a couple different assassinations. I'm at Cafe Gratitude in Venice, California, where I'm meeting Brett Harrelson for the first time. He's a blonde, wiry guy in his late 50s, with piercing blue eyes. And from the photos I've seen, he looks a lot like his father, Charles Harrelson. You know, he was intimidatingly intelligent. It's hard to say where he went wrong, because he sure, in the time I was around him, seemed to be super suave, cool, and handled himself well. Do I think he killed people while he was here on the planet? I for sure do. How many it might be, I can only imagine. 
My name is Jason Kavanaugh. I'm a journalist and documentary producer. And let me clarify right off the bat, my father isn't a hitman. I first came across this story when a friend of mine introduced me to Brett Harrelson, an actual son of a hitman, a few months back. At the time, I had never heard of Brett's father, Charles, but I had heard of Brett's older brother, who gave this interview to Barbara Walters in the late 90s. When you were seven years old, your father went off to prison, convicted of murder. Tell me what the story is today. Well, he is in prison right now for uh, the killing of a federal judge. Um, I think that it was not a fair trial. That's Woody Harrelson, the young bartender on Cheers. Oh, I think Gary's probably playing with us like a rat with a mouse. Who made the rare crossover to A-list film actor, starring in movies like Zombieland. Time to nut up or shut up. The Hunger Games. You really want to know how to stay alive? And No Country for Old Men. Do you have any idea how crazy you are? You mean the nature of this conversation? I mean the nature of you. Woody's had a wildly successful career, but I'd never heard him speak about his past. This interview only got stranger from there. I'm not saying my father's a saint, but I think he's innocent of that. You said once that you thought that your father was a CIA operative. Yeah, he was. How do you know? What proof? Ah, I shouldn't get into this right now. This is where we're going to get into trouble. Uh I was immediately intrigued and began reading everything I could find about Charles Harrelson and the cases against him. Could he have really been an assassin? Was he in the CIA? What I found, he went to trial for three murders, culminating in his conviction for the assassination of federal judge John Wood in 1979. At the time, it was called the crime of the century. This judge was killed And I don't specifically know who killed him, but I believe I know who's responsible for his death. I believe that corrupt members of an agency of the federal government killed the judge. The DEA? The DEA. Charles maintained his innocence until the day that he died in Supermax Federal Prison at the age of 69. Have you ever killed anybody? Have I ever killed anybody? Not to my knowledge, not to my direct knowledge. I must have been in a coma or certainly on another dimension because I didn't do it. I don't recall having done it. In my own dimension, I could see that some things might not be adding up in the cases against Charles Harrelson. I decided to try to figure out who the hell was this guy? That's what brings me back to Venice, California, where I'm meeting with Charles's youngest son, Brett Harrelson. A freshman in high school, I was expelled for getting caught smoking marijuana, so I would have to repeat my freshman year. Mom didn't want that to happen, so she asked my dad if I could go live with him. Charles and his wife, Diane, divorced in 1964, after just five years of marriage. And he left his sons, Jordan, Woody, and Brett, when the eldest was just four years old. By 1969, Charles got locked up in prison, and he wouldn't be a free man again until 1978. Outside of the occasional prison visit, 
the Harrelson boys grew up without a dad. When Charles finally did get out, 16-year-old Brett was sent to live with him. So you lived with your dad for how long? I would say it was probably four or five months, which was the time that the assassination happened. And that's the Judge Wood assassination? Correct. Did you see anything that you thought was suspicious at that point in time? Well, I was pretty blown away once when I did walk home and I came into the apartment after school. I guess he had been out at night, probably, I assume, gambling. And I didn't know that he was in the house. And so his door was closed, but I just walked in to get some marijuana that was always in this tray underneath his bed. And there was a um, briefcase that was open on his dresser that was just full with stacks of bundles of cash, a lot. And he woke up as I walk in his room and all that happened within seconds. And he yelled at me, he's just like, don't ever come in here without knocking. I was like, wow. I had never even seen a $100 bill until I lived with him. And that's what he handed me for my allowance. He always had cash. He always had hundreds. And that was normal for him, so. Brett lived with his dad just a couple months before the judge was assassinated. And I can't help but wonder if that suitcase full of cash was more than just gambling money. Do you remember seeing, like, guns? Oh, he always had a gun. I've never seen him without a gun. What did you think your dad did at that point? Well, at that point, you know, we were just told that he was a dental technician and he had the appropriate cards to prove that. You know, I just think he was a gambler and he organized high stakes poker games. If you sat down to play cards with him, It's not a matter of whether you're going to lose, it's just how much time it's going to take. Is there disagreement within your family as to whether your dad was guilty or innocent? Have you had discussions about that? Never. My mother and Woody, I can just tell their opinion is they don't want to talk about it because it's a personal, private matter. How about Jordan? Jordan, he, he he wouldn't mind talking about it. He wouldn't care. What about you? Um, I feel that I would love to expose just the magnitude of how corrupt this trial was and how my father didn't receive a fair trial and to say how badly he got fucked over. You know, the guy's no saint, but what he went to prison for life for, you know, I don't know that he did that or not. I have mixed feelings, and I have a lot of unanswered questions. To me, he's just, he's, he's, I see a lot of myself in him. <laughs> I know this sounds terrible, and I thought I'd love to be <laughs> as cool as this guy when I get older. Like, I, I looked up to him, you know. I wish I, I could know all he has done. Brett seems to think his father did time for a crime he didn't commit. And it sounds like the Harrelson family is torn over Charles' guilt or innocence. With Brett's blessing, I want to see if there's any truth to the idea that Charles Harrelson got a raw deal. To get an inside look at the government's case against Charles Harrelson for the assassination of federal judge John Wood, 
I've tracked down the chief prosecutor from that trial. Hey, Ray, how are you? Thanks for connecting. Oh, it's, it's all right. To me, it's part of the public service. We're trying to get the information about this case out because we're trying to restore the confidence of the public in both the United States Attorney's Office, the Department of Justice, and the FBI. Ray Yan has had quite the career. He and his wife, Leroy, are a legendary prosecution team. They cross-examined Bill Clinton during the Whitewater investigation, and led the prosecution during the Waco case. This guy handled some of the U.S. government's most political and controversial cases for over 40 years. Ray's thoughts on Charles Harrelson? He was an outright psychopath. We had more female witnesses that had slept with him than we could shake a stick at, including his two stepdaughters. Jeez. Very personal with the women. Give you an idea what he, at one point, decides he's going to try to negotiate a deal to benefit him. He calls the FBI and says he wants Leroy, my wife, to come out to his place in jail out in Van Horn, Texas. And so, of course, we both went out there and we got there. I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to your wife. And so he was trying to pick out someone he could charm. He could be quite charming, but at the same time, he was trying to dominate. I would say he was 6'3 or 6'4. When he testified, the marshals marked on the floor some chalk the dimensions of which I should stay out of. Because that way then, if he came after me, they could get to him before he reached the chalk lines. One of the people he associated with was a, a killer from Huntsville named Pete Kay, K-A-Y. Pete mm-hmm. had been indicted for three different deaths. I was talking to him during the pretrial. And I said, Pete, you know, aren't you afraid of Harrelson? And he said, no, I'm really not. And I said, why is that? I said, what's the difference between you and him? He said, well, I'm a hot-blooded killer, and Harrelson's a cold-blooded killer. That's the difference between the two of us. So how did you connect Charles Harrelson to the Judge Wood assassination? Uh, Harrelson was a, a subject of the investigation quite early, mainly because one of his colleagues had called the FBI the day of the shooting, saying that Harrelson said he did a deal out in the West and is going to get a lot of money. And so they assumed that that deal he was talking about was the Wood case. The FBI spent two years and over $12 million investigating this case. It's fairly complex, but with Ray's help, we're going to try to break it all down. The government based their case largely upon three pieces of evidence. An eyewitness, a murder weapon, and wiretap conversations involving the man who allegedly ordered the hit, drug smuggler Jimmy Chagra. One of the major subjects of the investigation was a man named Jimmy Shagra, dope drug dealer who started off in El Paso with small marijuana quantities. Jimmy Shagra wouldn't be dealing in small quantities for long. He expanded his operation out of Texas and was soon moving hundreds of kilos of weed from Colombia into the U.S. He would send out these very high-speed cigarette boats, load them up, and then bring them back to Florida. And he became extremely popular with the Colombians and was basically the base for their business here in the United States. By the late 1970s, Jimmy Chagra was responsible for 85% of the marijuana in the United States, and the federal government took notice. Rumor had it that Assistant U.S. Attorney James Kerr was actively investigating Chagra for narcotics trafficking. 
Kerr started investigating him, and had been investigating him when he was ambushed. While driving to the San Antonio courthouse one day, a white van pulled in front of James Kerr, stopped short, and shot his car with 19 rounds from an M1 carbine. They tried to kill Kerr. He survived by ducking under the firewall of his car. An assassination attempt on a federal prosecutor is a big deal. But there were questions about who ordered the hit. Many believed it was Jimmy Chagra. Kerr was removed from that investigation, and another attorney was assigned to the case. He indicted Chagra and was going to go to trial. Jimmy Chagra was due to appear before federal judge John Wood. Judge Wood had a reputation for being a very strict senator. He was known as Maximum John for giving the max sentence on all the drug cases that came before him. And Jimmy Chagra knew automatically that he would probably be spending the rest of his life in prison. After the recent attack on James Kerr, the U.S. Marshals feared Judge Wood might be facing similar threats. Judge Wood was offered protection by the Marshal Service. After a, a period of about three months, the judge withdrew from the protection program, saying that it was too much of a burden on his wife and himself and his family, and that they were going to kill him, they would get him anyway. So from January on, he was without protection. Judge Wood's decision to go without protection sealed his fate. The trial was set for May 29, 1979. It was going to go regardless come hell or high water. And then, of course, on the morning of May 29, 1979, as the judge was heading for court, he was shot and killed immediately in front of his condominium in San Antonio. Judge John Wood's funeral was attended by nearly 400 mourners. Ten or so were other federal judges. They were asked not to sit together during the mass for fear that something else might happen. From your perspective, do you feel like the case that was made is the way that this actually went down, that, that Jimmy Chagra hired Charles Harrelson to kill the judge and Charles Harrelson pulled the trigger on the judge? I have no question. I have no doubt whatsoever that that was the way it worked out. After talking to Ray Yan, the government's case against Charles Harrelson sounds pretty cut and dry. A drug smuggler facing certain life in prison hired Harrelson to shoot the judge. Harrelson carried out the hit, end of story. But that's just the prosecution's take. I want to look at this thing from all sides. And I've got 14 of them pretty well pinned down with one added one that you didn't have on the list. Awesome. Oh, who's that? I'm on the phone with Brad Thompson, a private investigator based out of Fort Worth, Texas. He specializes in investigations, personal protection, and counter-surveillance. We worked hand-in-hand with Texas Rangers Public Integrity Division, a lot with the uh, FBI. Brad's helping me track down the people who came into contact with Charles Harrelson over the years. We're also looking into court documents, public records, and any other information that might still be out there. They put all their eggs into this basket. This was the largest investigation that the FBI has ever run outside of the Kennedy one. Right. There was a lot of political pressure. Oh, absolutely. Somebody had to go down for it. So how solid was the government's case against Charles Harrelson? Let's start with the murder weapon, which was actually just the stock of a rifle found in a swamp. I, I still question the stock. Oh, we found a stock. Just a stock. The stock of a rifle is the wood part at the end of a gun that goes against your shoulder. 
and the registration on the stock led them back to this weapon purchased by Harrelson's wife. In this case, the stock was thought to be from a rifle purchased by Harrelson's wife, Joanne. The FBI matched her fingerprints and handwriting to the bill of sale from two years prior. To make a definitive, oh, this is the same gun bought by his wife, you know, we'll prove that shit up these days. Anything about the witness, the eyewitness? We, we've got their eyewitness that places Harrelson in the parking lot around the judges' uh, townhomes on the day of the murder. They had to hypnotize and did a hypnotic interview of their witness, which is, you know, kind of voodoo science to me. The government had an eyewitness pinpoint Charles Harrelson at Judge Wood's apartment complex the morning of the murder. But to help her remember details, the FBI had her put under hypnosis. This would never hold up in court today. In fact, just a month before the Judge Wood trial began, the Supreme Court ruled that hypnotically enhanced testimony was not admissible evidence. So what else isn't adding up for you? Well, like I said, there's issues with how they obtain the attorney-client conversations. A wiretap, what should be client-attorney privilege, was, was breached in this case, which should have been a no-no, should have never been admissible. Using wiretap surveillance, the FBI was able to tie Charles Harrelson to a $250,000 payoff made by Jimmy Chagra. I've yet to hear these wiretaps myself. I think that the rules were pretty lax and they moved pretty fast and loose with this because a federal judge had been killed. And I think that other federal judges were willing to give the government a little more leeway than they normally would have because of that. The government's case against Charles Harrelson may not be as open and shut as it first appeared. That's why his sons, Woody, Brett, and Jordan, hired a team of high-powered attorneys in the 1990s to try appealing their father's case. Hi, this is Danny. Hey, Danny, it's Jason Cavanaugh calling. Hi, Jason. How, How are you? you? Good. How are you doing? Good. As I understand it, you had uh, you worked with Charles Harrelson at some point. Yeah, we represented him. Danny Sheehan's a guy who knows a lot about a lot. He's a Harvard-educated, constitutional and public interest lawyer who litigated the Pentagon Papers case, the Watergate burglary case, and the Iran-Contra federal racketeering case. Right now, he's representing the Lakota tribe in their fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. So how did Sheehan come to know Charles Harrelson? Well, he met Woody at a Hollywood fundraising event, and they had some hobbies in common. And so when Woody asked me, we're, we're sitting in his hot tub at the house passing the joint back and forth. And he says, oh, look, Danny, by the way, uh, have you heard about Charles Harrelson? And I say, put your feet up, Woody, and let me tell you what the story is here about what happened. And so I start explaining the whole thing to him, and he says, fuck. He said, look, would you be willing to go see my dad? Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, sure, I would. At this point, Woody seemed willing to try anything to free his father. Because in 1995, Charles had done something desperate. He did this bizarre fucking thing, which is totally, totally bizarre. He somehow gets his hands on a homemade ladder that's about maybe 10 feet tall and races across the fucking yard at the prison and throws it up against a 30-foot wall and starts to climb up the fucking ladder. 
and there's every reason to believe he would have gotten shot to shit by the people in the towers. But uh, they didn't shoot him. They drag him down off the ladder and transfer him to the Supermax. The Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, hosts the most dangerous and high-profile inmates in the United States, including terrorists like the Unabomber and members of Al-Qaeda who planned the September 11th attacks, drug kingpins like El Chapo, and also, ultimately, Charles Harrelson. With his father now living in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day, Woody threw his money and influence behind an attempt to get him out. Actor Woody Harrelson was in Denver in a courtroom on Monday trying to win a new trial for his father. Charles Harrelson is serving two life sentences for murder of a federal judge in Texas 19 years ago. So the judge comes out and holds a hearing, gets out on the bench and says he is in possession of certain information that leads him to believe that there are serious questions about the guilt of Charles and that he is planning to issue an order giving him a new trial. Woody Harrelson spoke to reporters outside the courthouse after his father's hearing. If he gets a new trial, then we're going to have the first fair trial that he's had. I think that this judge, Judge Barry, is really fair, and uh, uh, I'm hopeful. What are you hoping for? A fair trial. A fair trial, that's all that he's ever wanted. That's all we've ever wanted. And Woody climbs on a fucking plane and flies down and finds out where the judge goes to the YMCA to play basketball and takes him on in a three-on-three game. And some people get a picture of it. And they immediately report it to the Justice Department and they file a motion uh, demanding the judge be recused from the case. And he gets thrown off the case and they put another judge on and he immediately denies the motion. I mean, what do you make of the state's case against Charles Harrelson? It was dog shit. It was dog shit. The rifle, the rifle was obviously a plant, period. You know, totally transparent. You know, I talked to Ray Yan, and he paints a pretty different picture. What do you think the chances are that Charles Harrelson killed the judge? Well, even if he did... I don't give it more than a 20% chance that he actually did it. After hearing from both sides, it's hard to know who or what to believe. But I have one more question I have to ask of a guy who spent time alone with Charles Harrelson. You see, there's this story I haven't mentioned yet because it seems a little far-fetched. But Danny might be just the person who knows. You know, just to, to, to take like a, a big step back from this, I mean, do you think that Charles Harrelson was involved in the assassination of JFK? At various points throughout his life, Charles Harrelson claimed responsibility for the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. They don't pay me to guess, but Charles told me that stuff. He gave me great details about he was smuggling weapons to Castro for the agency in Cuba back in 1958. And he was very clear about that. 
and he said he was smuggling weapons with Jack Ruby in coordination with the CIA. Jack Ruby is the man who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald, as the official narrative goes, is the man who assassinated John F. Kennedy. Some conspiracy theorists believe that Cuban exiles working with the CIA were behind the assassination of JFK. So he's in with a lot of those folks in the same way that Oswald was. And he knew perfectly well that telling me that would kind of increase the possibilities that he was in fact in Dallas. So you've got Charles right in the middle of all that. Do you think that there's the possibility that he's full of shit? Oh, there's always a possibility he's full of shit. I mean, anybody who will teach you at fucking cards will teach you in the other way he can, you know? And so it's, it's just figuring out, I guess, to what degree is he full of shit? Where is he telling the truth and where is he telling lies? That's right. That's exactly right. From all accounts, Charles Harrelson was a con man. And if I'm going to tell his story accurately, I need to make sure I'm not getting conned myself. So what have I learned so far? He was a gambler who always carried a gun, and he had access to large amounts of cash. He was charming, physically imposing, and the government has no doubt that he killed Judge John Wood. On the other hand, the government's evidence used to convict Harrelson seems thin for such a high-profile case. A rifle stock on which ballistics couldn't be run, an eyewitness who underwent hypnosis, and wiretapped conversations that probably should have been protected by attorney-client privilege. I'm going to have to look at this thing piece by piece, digging into each of the three murders Charles Harrelson was charged with, tracking down anyone and everyone involved. I want to find out if this guy was just a card shark, conning his way into suitcases filled with cash, or if he was a cold-blooded killer, complicit in the assassination of federal judge John Wood and potentially President John F. Kennedy. Well, do you believe Lee Harvey Oswald killed President Kennedy alone, without any aid from a rogue agency of the U.S. government, or at least a, a portion of that agency? I believe you're very naive if you do. This season on Son of a Hitman. We wouldn't be having this conversation if Harrelson was still alive. I'm headed to the Lone Star State. Looking into this stuff, has enough time passed that I don't have to worry about getting followed? Oh, it's, it's that followed you have to worry about. I'll talk to the smugglers. Do you have a passport? I do have a passport. Bring it with you. I'll take you into Juarez. It's a bustling little city, but once the sun goes down, things change. The victims' families. We're going to the police, and you're going to tell them who killed my son, and you're going to tell them where my son's body is. And the eyewitnesses. I mean, you cannot make this shit up. To set the record straight. It's the craziest fucking story. It's Blow meets Casino meets Scarface. And get to the truth. There could have been any number dead people on the curb and no witnesses. Behind the legend. Uh, I know you're good at what you do. Do not go over there try to talk to him. Just don't do that. Who knows what would happen? This is episode one of 10 of Son of a Hitman, the story of assassin Charles Harrelson. 
Future episodes will be released every Tuesday, exclusively on Spotify. Son of a Hitman is a Spotify original production, produced in partnership with Tradecraft Media and in association with High Five Content. The series is written and executive produced by me, Jason Cavanaugh. Our producer and editor is Alex Vespasted, and our associate producer is Deborah Correa. Editorial review by Natalie Robomet. Original music and theme song by Henry Benoit. Our post-supervisor is Blake Hill. Our mixer is Tom Boykin. From Spotify Studios, executive producers are Liz Gately and Erica Clark, and senior producer is Christina Choi. From Tradecraft Media, executive producers are Ash Soroya and Scott Bernstein. From High Five Content, executive producer is Andrew Jacobs. And many thanks to executive producer Brett Harrelson. Special thanks to Natalie Tulla, Robin Hopkins, Jifa Yador, Denise Holly, and Gina Delvac. Thanks to Tegan Broadwater and Brad Thompson from Tactical Systems Network. Charles Harrelson archival clips courtesy of Fox 4 News Dallas, Texas. Continue the journey of Son of a Hitman with us for free on Spotify, where you can enjoy both music and podcasts in one place. Thanks for listening.